0: This is Popaganda, the Feminist Response to Pop Culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. In pop culture, nostalgia is having a moment. Actually, more than a moment. Nostalgia is driving a substantial portion of our pop culture and driving people straight to the box office. Let's take a look at the biggest movies of the past year. Okay, so out of the 10 highest-grossing films in 2015, only two were original stories. The animated film Inside Out and Matt Damon in Space movie The Martian. The other top films were all reboots, throwbacks, or in the case of one film, the seventh in a series. I got family. This time it ain't just about being fast. That, of course, is the great Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious 7. The new Star Wars film, The Force Awakens, for example, has been a whopping success precisely because it taps into fans' love for the original three films. Instead of taking on a complicated new story and a whole new course, the film is built around giving the people what they want. Some fun new stuff, but mostly more about stories and characters they already know.
1: The Force.
0: It's calling to you. The same thing is going on to a lesser extent with TV. Online streaming has opened up an endless portal to nostalgia. Thanks to the miracle of the internet, you can now stream all the shows you grew up on as a kid. Are you vaguely wondering why Buffy the Vampire Slayer meant so much to you as a 14-year-old? Well, here you go. Here's every episode. Have fun falling down that rabbit hole. In a lot of ways, we are in the renaissance of 90s TV. Not only are outlets streaming old shows, but they're commissioning reboots of TV they know holds a warm and fuzzy place in the hearts of millions because of the sheer fact that we grew up on these shows. It's not about quality here, people. And perhaps the most egregious case of resurrecting a show that should stay dead, in my opinion, Full House will return this year. Netflix commissioned 13 new episodes of the show because apparently people can't get enough of jokes about John Stamos. Now, nostalgia isn't inherently good or bad. There are a lot of bad movies and TV shows that are made solely to tap into our nostalgia, but that's because the feeling itself is so powerful and palpable and real. It's undeniable. We crave the familiar. On today's show, we're exploring nostalgia and pop culture through the lens of TV. We're getting some deep thoughts on four shows that have seen renewed interest in recent years. Sailor Moon, The X-Files, Golden Girls, and Saved by the Bell. Stay tuned. But first, we're starting out today with a conversation to frame all our thoughts on nostalgia. Yes, nostalgia is a powerful force, but what does it mean? To answer this question, I called up my favorite TV writer, Essie Smith.
2: Hi, Essie Smith. Hello, it's a pleasure talking to you. Did, Did you
0: know that you're my favorite TV writer? (laughs)
2: <laughs> I did not. Are you just saying that to to butter up to me
0: here? <laughs> um, no, it's true. It's, it's genuinely true. Um, so Essie, you recently wrote for Bitch about uh, the shows Downton Abbey and Indian Summers, both shows which air in the United States on PBS, are period pieces that revolve around British characters at the turn of the century. Um, are you still watching those shows?
2: I am still watching those along with a host of other period shows and costume dramas because I have a sort of strange obsession with floofy frogs. I can't explain it.
0: (laughs) Well, you're definitely not alone. So a lot of people are familiar with Downton Abbey, which is about the lives and intricate social hierarchies and personal drama of aristocrats and servants in Edwardian England. But Indian Summers is newer. As Downton Abbey wraps up its final season this year, PBS, um, I think, is hoping that Indian Summers can take on some of its popularity. Do you you think that's right?
2: (laughs) Definitely. And they're Mm -hmm. also running a show that's going to be starting a little later this month called Mercy Street, which is about the American Civil War, which is very clearly also trying to capitalize on the popularity of costume and period dramas. Huh. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So if you're not familiar with it, Indian Summers is... um... Set in India, it's under the rule of the British Raj, and a group of white British people um, decamp to a mountain town of Simla to beat out the suffocating heat and loosen their collars for a bit. So, Essie, I guess my question for you is, why do audiences love period pieces like this so much?
2: I think that's a question with a really complicated answer. One thing, obviously, is our mutual affection for delicious frothy frocks. Also, there's a sense that we can engage with social issues, both past and present, and it feels more comfortable when we can distance ourselves. So a great example is Indian Summers kind of digs in at times on racism and particularly looking at religious divides as well. And people are very scared of looking at that in a modern context because that kind of cuts too close to home And there also seems to be a bit of nostalgia for Days Gone Past with an almost deliberately cultivated ignorance of the dark sides of that. I mean, with Downton Abbey, you had, especially in earlier seasons, women didn't even have the right to vote. You have issues like entailment that barred Lady Mary from inheriting her own family estate. So you have kind of all of these social issues that get shoved under the carpet because what you're seeing is the glitz and glamour.
0: Well, yeah, I think I think it's a really important point that in, in a lot of ways these shows can comment on social issues that we're still dealing with today and that have resonated through our history. But in other ways, because they're set in the past, it feels safer to watch them somehow or what today would feel very political and maybe um, invasive or heated instead feels exciting or like, ooh, look at this other world in the past.
2: Definitely. And I think you can really see that with early seasons of Downton Abbey, which I was super excited about because the show seemed to be taking a very class war bent by looking at both the upstairs and the downstairs, which is kind of, I don't know if you watched Julian Fellow's film, Gosford Park drew upon a lot of the things that we see in Downton Abbey. That's clearly when he started doing the research that you really see meticulously replicated on PBS for your viewing pleasure. And originally you saw a lot more of the class tensions with servants wanting to get out of service, for example, which was a very alien concept at the turn of the 20th century. There was kind of an idea that you would intergenerationally work as ladies' maids and servants and butlers, and the idea that you might strike out on your own and start working for yourself was really terrifying to a lot of people. And you see the class boundaries breaking down, of course, with the infamous affair with the chauffeur, and sort of an examination of issues that we're facing right now as well. But people are more reluctant to engage with contemporary class issues even with things like the fight for minimum wage and Bernie Sanders exploding in the polls.
0: And so, but in some ways you're saying that um, these sort of, these issues around, so in some ways you're saying that these like important political issues and social issues, that that is something that these shows do explore, but it can get kind of downplayed or overshadowed by all the focus on the glamour of the period um, and the glamour of the costumes and the hair and, and all that.
2: Is that that what you're saying? It definitely can. To uh, bag on Downton Abbey again for a minute, when you look at, for example, the paper doll sets, you're not seeing Daisy and Mrs. Patmore. You're seeing Lady Edith and Lady Mary, right? People dress up for Downton Abbey parties as the people upstairs, not the people downstairs. And you don't see things that would have been common at the time. There wouldn't have been electricity in the servants' quarters, Servants were probably using outhouses rather than indoor plumbing. Servants were eating the worst cuts of meat and the leftovers. So you're not seeing the really ugly parts of the servant's life. All you really see is the kitchen, which is this kind of bright, idealized version of the comfortable English farm kitchen. And then you see the servant's hall where they kind of dine and have meetings. And then you see the room where they polish the shoes. And that's about it. You don't get a sense of what their lives were really like, except through the lens of the upper class people that they work for. And that's really not an accurate picture of what life was like as a servant at the time.
0: I think nostalgia plays into the costumes and the hair of these shows in a really interesting way. And one is that I feel like when people watch these shows, one thing that we just that we love is... Um, how nicely everybody is dressed <laughs> and something I hear over and over and that I think myself is like wow look at how people um, how like all men wore hats in those days and how the women were like dressed to the nines you know wearing what we would think now of as very fancy handmade dresses to do the simplest things and I'm curious on your thoughts about how about like the nostalgia for a time when when clothing was more gendered and and fancier. Do you think that plays into our our love of these shows?
2: Oh, totally. And there's very much this nostalgia for, wasn't it nice when everybody dressed up, that I also see, for example, with dressing up for airplanes. This used to be a big thing, right? Everyone would wear their fanciest clothes because this is a big adventure. And so we see people talking about, wasn't it nice when people dressed up for planes instead of wearing sweatpants and slippers. But what people don't talk about is the sexual harassment that stewardesses experienced, that flight crews were usually all female in the cabin and all male in the cockpit, that women had these ridiculous appearance standards. And so that's really erased in favor of, look at the pretty people wearing the pretty things. You don't see the ugly cost there. That ties into how
0: these super gendered and specific ways of dressing that now we look back and say oh man that looks so so glamorous in a lot of ways are super confining and what more people were rebelling against in future generations our right to wear sweatpants if we want to you know and so I think nowadays we can kind of have a rosy view of the past in part because of these shows and say oh wouldn't it be nice if you know, all women dressed up and wore fancy skirts and men wore hats whenever they went outside. But on the other hand, that's not a world that I want to live in.
2: Definitely not. There are a lot of highly performative gender norms that go on there that weren't just about clothing, but the clothing kind of reinforced bigger social issues. Um, The most recent airing of Downton Abbey, we have Lady Mary trying to assert herself as the manager of the estate, and we have a farmer saying that he doesn't want to deal with her because as a woman, she couldn't possibly be the one in charge, as though she's somehow hiding the male manager somewhere behind her, perhaps under the piano or something. And that really ties into, she's a woman, she has to wear these constricting clothes, women behave like this, they do that. And Mary is a very interesting character because she's so rebellious. So even as she's wearing the right clothing and the jewelry and having her hair done just so, she's out having affairs and taking the estate in hand and really trying to assert herself. And she gets a lot of pushback on that.
0: And I think that that ties into the last thing I really want to talk about, which is that. Obviously, this wasn't a good time to be alive if you're a woman or a person of color or you're poor or you have a disability. Um, your life would be much more confined than it is today. So how does that tie into our desire to still see these stories set in this time and a nostalgia for a period in which, honestly, life was, was pretty bad for people
2: who weren't white rich guys? Well, it's kind of an ugly thing to say, but it really ties in with a nostalgia for an era in which systems of oppression and dominance were much simpler. And obviously, white viewers get a lot out of this because you don't really have to engage directly with race. And wasn't it nice when white people could just be in charge? And non-disabled people don't have to deal with the discomfort of seeing disabled bodies on the screen. And cis people don't have to see transgender people or to have their notions of gender challenged. And middle and upper class viewers don't really have to deal with poverty. They can push it off into the corner. So you see over and over again rhetoric about, well, things used to be simpler in those days. And what people usually mean by that is that in those days, people who looked like them and enjoyed their social status got to be in charge, and dealing with this kind of internalized oppression is a big problem on both sides because, of course, a lot of people from more marginalized social groups look at these shows and the huge nostalgia factor and kind of roll their eyes. Um, After I wrote the feature on Indian Summers, I actually got a lovely email from someone who said... You know, I'm a Hindu woman, and I've been watching everyone go gonzo for this show, and I was waiting for one person, just one person who is not Hindu and who is white to write a piece that is critical of what this show is really saying about this time. And it was a really stark reminder that it's kind of easy for all of us to slip into this notion that we really are better than the people that we have been oppressing for centuries.
0: That was writer S. E. Smith. Follow S E on Twitter at Real S. E. Smith for more thoughts on lots of television. When many of us were growing up, there was one girl hero who shone brighter than them all. Sailor Moon. The Japanese TV show, and epic manga series, landed in the United States in the early 90s and promptly won the hearts of millions. The main characters are all schoolgirls, who transform into awesome and super-feminine crime-fighting heroes to fight intergalactic baddies, try to track down a space princess, and save the solar system from destruction. years ago, the forces behind Sailor Moon announced two big things for fans. The anime would be rebooted with all new episodes, plus the original show would be available uncensored for the first time to English-speaking audiences. In the original airing of the show in the United States, the show's queer storylines were cut out. In the original Japanese version, Sailor's Neptune and Uranus were girlfriends, but in the American version, they're just cousins who love each other in a totally platonic way. One person who grew up watching Sailor Moon is writer and chef Soleil Ho. These days, she's the executive chef at Northlight in Portland, where she cooks up dishes like banh mi french fries and a highbrow filet-o-fish. Welcome to the show, Soleil. It's not that highbrow. It's $12. (laughs) Thank you. Where she cooks up $12 versions of filet-o-fish. It looked really good. It looked really good. It's got like American cheese on top.
3: Yeah, it's authentic
0: American cheese. Wow. (laughs) authentic american cheese is um such an exciting experience yeah
3: we don't fuck around
0: (laughs) um do you still love sailor moon you grew up watching the show
3: i do um i think 80 to 100 percent of it is nostalgia Mm
2: -hmm. i don't
3: actually participate in any way with sailor moon i just look at pretty pictures sometimes on the internet which is really not that different from how i used to participate in it when i was 11 so I guess it's all the same.
0: And you're here to share an essay with us about growing up on Sailor Moon. Um, this essay was originally published in Interrupt magazine. Can you tell me about wanting to write this essay? What were you trying to work through when you started writing it? I
3: think what happened was I was looking through my hard drive and I found a scan that I made of a drawing I, I made by taping tracing paper to my TV. I talk about this in the essay, but I found a scan of it and I remembered all of a sudden all these things, Um, and I just wrote an essay about it.
0: Great, well, let's hear it. Um, Let's just launch into it. All
3: right. The title is Girl Power. This is what I remember from my childhood, pressing my plump cheeks against a window, watching my father step into a taxi with a single blue duffel bag, the smell of New York City in the rain, and Sailor Moon. My life began in 1995, the year I turned eight and became a divorced kid. From that year onward until I turned 13, my sister and I were shuffled between my mother's apartment in New York City and my paternal grandparents' condominium in West Orange, New Jersey, every other weekend for the purpose of fulfilling the visitation requirements of our parents' divorce settlement. Our time at my father's home, which he shared with his deeply Catholic relatives, was unstructured and pointless. I must have spent hours pinching the loose skin on the back of my great-grandmother's hands while she watched Vietnamese soap operas during the day. It was either that or braving the living room where one aunt or another would find me and tell me that I was getting too chubby from all that American pizza. I knew, little girl that I was, that putting up with all of this was my only option. I realized this the moment I found my father packing his bag in my parents' bedroom and found the edges of his brown eyes engraved with deep grooves, like a fresh dug irrigation system. He wanted me to beg him to stay, but I simply blinked and walked away. I knew then that something important to my family was in motion, and that my feelings had no place in it. I am Sailor Moon. I will right wrongs and triumph over evil, and that means you. Drawn by its gender-appropriate pink box and sparkly text, my father gave me a VHS tape of Sailor Moon episodes during one of our visits. I expected to hate it, just as I hated his other sad, insipid gifts. Jeans two sizes too small, mechanical pencils, lacy ribbons for my knotted hair. Nevertheless, I grabbed my toddler sister and a bowl of potato chips from the kitchen and locked our bedroom door behind us to watch it. Now that I'm an adult, describing Sailor Moon to other people can be a little embarrassing, since the simple act of talking about the show probably makes me look like a sweaty nerd. But here's the deal. The character of Sailor Moon is a magical girl who goes to middle school by day and uses miraculous powers to battle evildoers from outer space by night. Everything about her is feminine, from her pleated miniskirt to the sparkling backdrop of her transformation sequence. What's really fascinating about her is the fact that she's clumsy, gluttonous, a crybaby, an F-student, and as boy-crazy as a cat in heat throughout the first season. Despite all of her personal shortcomings, she dedicates her life to fighting for, as she puts it, love and justice during all of my subsequent visits I would watch the show in that room in my grandparents basement when I ran out of new episodes I would start all over again from the beginning this was a world where girls were fighters where they could eat all the food they wanted where they could cry on our hour-long drives back to our mother's apartment my father would ask us do you think your mom loves you as much as I do My wish to join Sailor Moon became so insistent that I resorted to desperate measures to lengthen my visits. I would pause the videos from my bed during close-ups of my favorite characters' faces and stare at the frozen pictures marred by icy horizontal lines. Eventually, I came up with a solution for the dreadful intervals during which access to the television was compromised. In addition to pausing the videos, I began to tape large sheets of tracing paper to the screen and trace the images so they could keep me company in corporeal form. I would keep at least one folded up in my pocket during Mass, moving it between my fingers for comfort like a paper rosary bead. Back home in New York City, my friends were beginning to talk about this thing called girl power. While not so much talking about it as shouting the phrase whenever they got excited about anything, my best friend and fellow divorced kid, Samantha, introduced me to the concept. It just means that when girls do something, it's better because we're girls. She would usually conclude such statements with cartwheels, no matter where we were. The Spice Girls filled me in on the rest of the idea. At their peak in 1997, the Spice Girls infected the globe with their brand of girl power, which is a slippery idea that, thanks to its broad marketing, is hard to define without resorting to punctually punctuated buzzwords and phrases. Individuality, success, cat suits, sexiness, kicking ass, record deals, femininity, image management independence. It's a particularly abstract take on empowerment feminism, which is a philosophy that, as Samantha pointed out to me, reconfigures any and all actions taken by women into feminist victories. According to the tenets of Our Ladies of Spice, Madonna is girl power, Margaret Thatcher is girl power, Rachel Ray is girl power, Phyllis Schlafly is girl power. I am, therefore I am powerful. I remember someone asking Samantha who would quickly become the resident girl power evangelist. Can grown-ups have girl power? Since the Spice Girls were all obviously adult women, it became easy to deduce that being a girl was something eternal that you would never discard. When I heard her say this, my back muscles tightened. So no matter how old I got, would I be a girl forever? Every time someone calls me a girl or yells, hey baby girl, at me on the street, I remember what Samantha said. I continually have to remind myself that I am a comfortable number of years older than 18, that by all quantifiable measures, I am a woman. And yet, the funny thing about the Spice Girls is that the five of them all went by reductive aliases, mostly adjectives, sporty, scary, posh, baby, and ginger. The object of this branding was to make their personality simple to understand and as accessible to young girls as possible. Samantha decided early on that she was Sporty Spice, which only served to increase the frequency of her cartwheels, but I had a hard time deciding for myself, since there wasn't, as far as I could tell, a Smarty Spice. My father, who was a hair used to insist on grooming my sister and I while we visited him. All the particularity that I see in myself was reflected in those moments, when he evened out bangs aligned between his fingers, peeked into the shower to make sure that I was shampooing correctly. And shaped my hair into nauseatingly girlish sculptures that made me look like a Vietnamese Cindy Brady. It seemed to get worse as time went on, and I progressed further and further away from his vision of me. Despite his lack of control over the war, he acted as if each strand of my hair that he cut was a redrawing of the battlefield between himself and my mother. We never really considered why we wanted to be any of the Spice Girls in the first place. Girl power isn't a very potent magic. Just because we started incanting it didn't mean that our single mothers would have an easier time taking care of us. Girl power wouldn't save us from being hurt by people we loved. It wouldn't stop our relatives from pinching our bellies and sucking their teeth. The spell couldn't block out the sound of being raped. As I grew and learned and suffered, I started to wonder, at what point would playing pretend transform into something real? Shortly before I entered high school... I made the conscious decision to cut my father out of my life entirely. It was simple. My mom asked me to give him our new address and home phone number after a move, and I didn't. It didn't matter to me that my sister may have needed a dad, or that my father may have needed his daughters. I just didn't think I would be able to grow up as long as I felt like a divorced kid. Living as a person who just incidentally didn't have a father seemed like a much easier proposition. I didn't want to be a girl anymore, but I wasn't yet sure of what a woman was supposed to be. My mother was beautiful, too beautiful, for me to even imagine us as being part of the same species. Instead, my mind moved towards my favorite Sailor Moon character, Sailor Uranus. When she isn't fighting the bad guys, she dresses in men's clothing and dates a feminine woman. In the American version of the show, she and her partner are identified as cousins, although they certainly don't act like I do with my relatives. I wanted to be strong and handsome like her, and I identified with her inability to trust other people, especially men. She was all of that, and yet she was a girl. From a young age, I was drawn to the mysterious contradiction of her body, which seemed so impossible to achieve in my helpless childhood. So, here's that kid logic again, I tried to abandon my gender entirely, after school I would sit in Union Square Park and watch the skateboard kids lurch around the asphalt in their blunt sneakers and backwards caps for hours, self consciously rotating my shoulders to mimic their movements. On the way to the train, I shadowed the most masculine men I could find and made my gait as wide as theirs. I kissed girls and enjoyed the voyeurism of swimming in their shameless softness. One day, after school, I stopped at Walgreens and spent a week's worth of lunch money on self adhesive ace bandages. The next morning, I got up early and launched a full-scale assault on my bare chest, beating its swollen ridges and mounds into a flat, pleasing surface. I sequestered my shoulder-length hair into a baseball cap and hardened my stare. As I walked out the front door, I wondered if this was how empowerment felt. The minute, needling sensation of other people's gazes was gone. I could barely breathe, but I was too engrossed in my freedom to care. When I got home from school, I rushed into my room and pulled off my shirt. My skin was slick from sweat, but the bandage was as tight as it was that morning. I grabbed the end of it and slowly began to pull. When I arrived at the edge of where the loose end met my skin, I hesitated, testing the strength of the bandage's glue with a gentle tug. The newly freed skin turned pink and began to prickle. I paced the seven-foot length of my room like a stressed dog. My constricted lungs tried to take in what little air they could. For a moment, I considered leaving the bandage on. I just didn't want to be a boy that badly. I sat on my bed and pulled hard. The edges of my vision turned fuzzy and white, but I kept pulling, ripping, tearing off raw centimeters of blinding pain. My father's family owns a hair and nail salon in New Jersey. He took us there once, and while I took care of some papers, I watched my aunt apply hot wax and paper to a customer's legs. Every time she pulled off a patch of hair, the woman's back arched nearly imperceptibly off her polyester-lined chair. Perhaps one of the most important differences between Sailor Moon and the Spice Girls is the fact that there are no villains in the world of the latter. It makes sense. If the problem with being a girl is simply a matter of rebranding, the onus is on the girl to adjust her bad attitude. In their lively music videos, the Spice Girls kick and punch empty air. This, I suspect is connected to the way many of us conceive of feminism as being entirely an issue of empowerment and representation, which are oppressions that can exist conveniently without oppressors. Far from being a radical idea, girl power is an ideology that ignores structural power relationships in favor of endless self-reprobation. It is feminism birthed and nourished by the individualistic and antisocial legacies of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, both people for whom the idea of powerlessness was heretical. In her book, The Sex Which Is Not One, French philosopher Luce Irigaray warns, if feminists aim simply for a change in the distribution of power, leaving intact the power structure itself, then they are resubjecting themselves, deliberately or not, to a phallocratic order. This idea is equivalent to, say, arguing for more representative hiring practices in prisons without critiquing the premise of the prison itself or abandoning one's gender and embracing another purely out of a sense of internalized misogyny. I realize now that being a girl, or even identifying as one, as the case may be, is one of the hardest roles one can inhabit in this world. A girl is supposed to be so many things—attractive, graceful, polite, quiet, valuable, valueless—but none of those traits guarantee that she'll be taken seriously as a thinking and feeling human being. On the other hand, the absence of those traits can often invite violence or at the very least, judgment. When we say that all girls are powerful, we often refrain from explaining just what kind of power we're talking about. It could be the power to eat Cheetos if they want to, or the power to govern their own bodies. Though on the whole, the people in charge of their lives hardly trust them to do either of those things. The power that I want girls to have certainly includes that, but also something else entirely. Many of the villains in Sailor Moon are obviously misogynists and prey on everyday young girls. But they're also typed as adults, and often as women. Drawing breasts onto an animated monster opens up a visual metaphor that tells us that Sailor Moon isn't just fighting aliens, but a world of adults who want to destroy everything beautiful in girls. In order to save the people she loves, she fights and gets hurt and breaks down and even completely fails at times. And when she can manage it, she tries to save the monsters too. In the meantime, I'll be waiting for her to appear at my window, In my last letter to my father, written and destroyed a little more than a month ago, I asked, will I ever be able to think about you without instantly wanting to disappear?
0: That was Soleil Ho. Look her up at soleilho.tumblr.com for more of her writing and her delicious banh mi fries. Hey podcast listeners, have you noticed that we don't shy away from tough conversations and that we cover just about every topic you can think of? That's because as a nonprofit independent media outlet... Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you, not some big corporation or deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org slash podcast. And be sure to mention propaganda or backtalk when you donate. Thanks so much. When I was in junior high, I had one major extracurricular activity watching the X-Files. I loved the spookiness and the drama surrounding FBI agents Dana Scully, played by Gillian Anderson, and Fox Mulder. That'd be David Duchovny. During the long summer months, I got X-Files consumption down to an efficient science. This was long before Netflix, back when binge-watching required serious devotion. Every day, I would walk down to the video store and rent a $2 VHS tape of two X-Files episodes. Then, At 9 p.m., I could watch another X-Files rerun on FX. This means I could squeeze three X-Files episodes into each 24-hour period. In my downtime, I read the unofficial X-Files guidebooks. It was a great summer. Though I stopped watching the show as I got older—even 14-year-old me could clearly see the show jump the shark in season 6—I remembered the X-Files as an excellent show. Agent Scully was a confident scientist. Agent Mulder was a dreamboat. I loved them both and thought that they could be the kind of odd couple that's clearly made for each other. Then last year, Fox announced that the original stars would be coming back to TV for an all new X-Files miniseries that debuts this January. I giddily started rewatching episodes. The X-Files is certainly a lot cheesier and low budget than I remembered through the haze of nostalgia. But that's not the biggest difference. Before finishing even one episode, I realized something even worse. Agent Mulder, is not a dreamboat. In fact, he's an asshole. An asshole who spends most of the series mansplaining to Agent Scully. A lot of the fun on the X-Files, of course, comes from the sparky dynamic between Mulder and Scully. He's a conspiracy theorist who instantly points to aliens, ghosts, or an errant chupacabra as the culprit for many of the crimes the pair investigate. Scully, meanwhile, is a forensic doctor whose criminal hypotheses stem from her extensive understanding of anatomy, chemistry, and biology. I'd always loved seeing the partners bounce contrasting ideas off each other. But watching the show as an adult, who's had two decades or so to reflect on everyday sexism, it's suddenly obvious how much crap Scully has to put up with. Not only does Mulder routinely dismiss her extremely practical ideas, but her knowledge often gets the side-eye from other men in the male-dominated world of law enforcement. In episode after episode, she has to defend her ideas to Mulder, to her boss, Agent Skinner, to small-town cops, and to a rotating cast of folks like the Lone Gunmen. As a teen, I loved how Scully presented herself confidently and competently in the face of truly otherworldly chaos. She is a great character for that reason still. But watching the show now, instead of rooting for Mulder and Scully as a duo, I find myself rooting for Scully alone. 25 years after The X-Files debuted, it's still rare to see a female character who's as complicated and as resilient as Scully, especially one who works in science. Meanwhile, many of Mulder's character traits that I once thought were endearing, like his puppy dog attitude, his propensity toward throwing himself in the path of danger, his skepticism towards Scully's ideas, now feel to me like standard egotistical behavior. As a teenager, I'd never met anyone like Mulder. Now, I've met many guys who act a lot like him, Although their obsessions are usually not aliens, but Apple products, or politics, or ethics and video game journalism. What stands out about The X-Files while watching it now, though, is how consistently Scully stands up for herself. There are a bunch of episodes where Scully's no-nonsense attitude toward mansplaining shines. In season 3 episode Jose Chung's From Outer Space, Mulder runs around trying to prove that two upset teens were abducted by aliens while they were on a date. Scully calmly explains that it's far more plausible the two teenagers simply had sex and are struggling to deal with the emotional aftermath. That episode, like most episodes of The X-Files, ends in a gray area. Neither Mulder nor Scully's ideas are completely vindicated, and it's not clear to viewers whether the strange encounter was caused by sexual trauma, extraterrestrials, or shadowy government agents. Neither agent is wrong, but the script's writers are careful to show that neither is objectively right, either. Another fan-favorite Scully episode is season four's Never Again. Julian Anderson asked the show writers to put together a script specifically exploring Scully's dark side. The result is this episode that begins with Scully asking Mulder why he has a desk, with a nameplate and all, and she doesn't. Mulder says he always thought of a corner of the room as her area, an explanation Scully doesn't buy. Then Mulder heads out on vacation, telling Scully to follow up on a UFO sighting. She argues that it seems like a real waste of time, especially since the witness account of the incident sounds suspiciously like a plot of Rocky and Bullwinkle. The episode ends with the line, Not everything is about you, Mulder. This is my life. Television doesn't get more direct than that. The Mulder is an asshole trend isn't just something that bugs me. A lot of fans feel the same way. This fall, I was on an X-Files panel at Geek Girl Con in Seattle with five other female fans. In front of a conference room full of several dozen serious X-Files devotees, I felt a little nervous to voice my negative feelings about Mulder. But a panelist and X-Files burlesque producer, yes, that is a thing, beat me to it. Mulder is a real dick, she said, to applause. That quickly became the theme of the panel, recounting the many ways that Mulder shuts down Scully, dismisses her intelligence, and generally belittles her during the series. Every fan had their own story of coming to realize that Mulder is a dick. Instead of reveling in the will-they-or-won't-they romance between Mulder and Scully, as adults we all agreed that Mulder feels a lot like a manipulative ex-boyfriend who all women are better off without. When the new miniseries airs this month on Fox, I'll be watching. But while the show will always hold a special place in my heart, what will keep me tuned into the reboot isn't Mulder and Scully. It's Scully, holding her own. Mulder and his eye-rolling can get permanently abducted for all I care. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking all about the power of nostalgia and pop culture. Does this song mean anything to you? I have kind of a Pavlovian response to that theme song where suddenly I viscerally remember the taste of Dr. Pepper and Top Ramen, which I would consume in tandem on my parents' sofa while I watched Saved by the Bell as a kid. But how does Saved by the Bell hold up as an adult? Not well, says writer Emily Hashimoto. Here's her take on the show.
1: Here's a fact that will make you feel old. Saved by the Bell premiered 27 years ago. Warm feelings are running high for the 90s show about six friends in an upper-middle-class high school. In addition to the original 86 episodes, the show spawned two spin spin-off series, two made-for-TV movies, is the subject of an unauthorized lifetime movie about behind-the-scenes life on the sitcom, and is the basis for a tell-all memoir written by Dustin Diamond, who played Screech. Plus, the entire series is available on Netflix, which means people who grew up on the show can now binge-watch reruns. Amid all the loving retrospectives of Saved by the Bell, I'm here to say something unpopular. Nostalgia has not made the show any better. Instead, watching Saved by the Bell today feels like consuming a television relic. It's clear that the creators and writers of Saved by the Bell were not trying to create revolutionary programming for children and young adults. They stuck to lowest common denominator plot lines. They packed the show with jokes you see coming a mile away. They always tied up each half hour episode with neat resolution. And yet, the show endures as part of our pop culture consciousness. As we hit a quarter century of Saved by the Bell, I think it's time we look back and evaluate gender and relationships in the show that millions of Americans grew up watching. First off, the cast were all stereotypes. Head cheerleader Kelly, played by Tiffany Thiessen. The fashion plate Lisa, played by Lark Voorhees. The feminist activist Jessie, played by Elizabeth Berkley. The jock A.C. Slater. Mario Lopez, the preppy ladies' man, Zach, Mark Paul Gosselaar, and the geek, Screech. Comedian April Richardson talked to me about watching every episode of the show for her podcast, Go Bayside, and it hasn't been pretty. You can tell how they feel about women, she told me. It's worth noting that Saved by the Bell had an all-male writers' room. Only two women, Stephanie Garman and Hollis White, were ever credited as writers on the show. They both had exactly one story-by credit. Maybe this is why the female characters feel so flat. Kelly's character is defined by being nice and gorgeous, and that's about it. Executive producer Peter Engel discussed casting Tiffany Thiessen as Kelly in this way. She can't walk, she can't talk, she can't chew gum at the same time, but she's going to be a major star. As for Lisa, she's pretty too and shops a lot. That's about it. In fact, producer Peter Engel originally envisioned Lisa as a Jewish princess from Great Neck, Long Island, She feels like an offensive stereotype in front of their audience. Knowing what was at stake in the creation of Kelly and Lisa makes it all the more strange that Jesse was conceived of as a character who would deal with meaty plots. On the show, Jessie contends with complex issues like her parents' remarriages, blended families, body image, and fears of not measuring up academically. There are lots of think pieces on Jesse's personal brand of feminism. Jessie was many viewers' first exposure to a self-proclaimed feminist. An avowed feminist on television, let alone on Saturday morning, then or now, is a rare thing indeed. Writing for Jezebel, writer Hortense Smith recalled, I certainly knew feminists, but I had never met a woman who identified herself as such, at least not in the definitive manner that Jesse Spano did. It's interesting that a feminist managed to get into a group of characters who are common American stereotypes. As Gabrielle Moss wrote for Bitch in 2013, I savored every character who called herself a feminist during that TGIF era, even though these characters were rarely depicted as being reasonable. I knew the characters like Saved by the Bell's Jessie Spano were supposed to be the butt of a joke. And yet, the biggest takeaway from Jessie's character is how destructive her feminism is. She was a one-person feminist campaign, calling out machismo left and right. But her feminism is not one I could recognize. It has the trappings of what a bunch of old men would assume feminism is all about. Jessie's feminism is a hindrance that makes her annoying. She's there to be made fun of. That notion is reinforced by the fact that even her female friends don't back her up most of the time. Contrasting Jessie with the popular Lisa and Kelly, the show's writers strongly suggest that being a feminist is unappealing. On Feministing, LaCrista Greco remembers watching the show at 10 years old and thinking, God, I never want to be a feminist. She made it seem so whiny. It's in this way that the writer at blog The Son of Feeney doesn't seem to be overreaching when they say the show socially engineered its impressionable audience against feminist teachings. One impression a viewer could be left with that feminism means not supporting other women case in point hold me tight an episode that features christy a female wrestler the male wrestling coach won't allow to try out for the team zach develops a crush on her both he and jesse advocate for her on the radio and in a public protest
4: guys guys
1: i want you to meet christy barnes hi
4: christy hello now listen
1: up she needs our help coach won't let her try out for the wrestling team why not Because I'm a girl. Well, that's discrimination. He can't do that. Well, he did it, Mama. What's your big mouth going to do about it? (laughs) Jessie declares that we sisters have to stick together.
0: We're terrific. Oh, I couldn't have done it without you. Well, we sisters have to stick together. (laughs) That
1: is, until Jesse thinks Christy is interested in her boyfriend Slater, who's also on the wrestling team. Jessie recants her support of Christy and tells her, again on the radio... That girls have absolutely no business wrestling guys, and to keep your hands off our men. It's not that feminists can't be jealous. We are human, after all. But it's that Jessie's ready to dump her principles on a whim. Even the audience doesn't buy in. Jessie receives an avalanche of negative ooing. It's worth pointing out that we never see Christy again. She is literally only in this episode. Zach has a lot of these encounters with women one-episode arcs that teach him, and us, lessons about tolerance and difference. In addition to female wrestlers, he also dates fat women, homeless women, and women in wheelchairs. During these moralizing storylines, the writers choose certain issues that get kid gloves, Richardson notes, while other people, fat people usually, nerds always, and people with hearing disabilities, are made fun of with impunity. Though you may not remember these episodes, I can catch you up super quick. Zach meets these women, has an extreme reaction, says the wrong thing multiple times, and accepts them by the end. Without fail, they forget the horrible way he acted and the terrible things he said, and they kiss or hug. Cue credits. They are not flesh and blood characters. They are mere stand-ins for the one trait that defines them in the theme of each very special episode. When people write about Saved by the Bell today, they focus on the big cell phone, the eye-assaulting wardrobe, and a certain someone's breakdown after a brief fling with caffeine pills. No matter how silly this show was, there's no doubt of its popularity. To take this subject matter seriously is to take our consumption of culture seriously. This swirl of messages about gender in the show is confusing, but in my case, and perhaps for many others, I left the show behind in search of better characters with more relatable experiences. And yet, no matter what i found... I know that this show will always be around, airing weekday mornings as a nostalgic recitation of what a bunch of old male writers thought of young high school women.
0: That was writer Emily Hashimoto. A longer version of that essay where she discusses race and Saved by the Bell is on our site, bitchmedia.org. I'll put a link to it in the podcast on our site. In the meantime, you can follow Emily on Twitter at EmilyHash. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're exploring nostalgia on TV. For our final piece on this show, let's take some time with these ladies.
2: Thank you for being a friend.
0: Bea Arthur, Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and Estelle Getty starred as four beloved friends on The Golden Girls, which was on the air for seven seasons from 1985 to 1992. The four older women shared a house and got into all sorts of adventures, As writer Elizabeth Yuko points out in this piece, the show took on some social issues that were rare for television to discuss at the time and still are, surprisingly. Here's Elizabeth Yuko. The Golden Girls was ahead of its time. The show,
4: which ran from 1985 to 1992, is best remembered as a chatty sitcom where four friends in their golden years, Blanche, Rose, Sophia, and Dorothy, discussed their personal lives. But it included a surprising number of plot lines about significant scientific and medical issues that other TV shows seldom discussed, including conceiving a child via artificial insemination, the HIV-AIDS epidemic and stigmatization, organ donation, sexual health, body modification, end-of-life care, and cryopreservation. For many people who grew up watching the show either during its original run or in syndication, The Golden Girls was their first exposure to these complex issues. More than just a handful of token very special episodes, The Golden Girls made difficult ethical issues a staple of the show. The Golden Girls started just before my second birthday. September 2015 was the anniversary of the show's very first episode. Between watching the original run with my parents and its years of syndication with my roommates in college and beyond, these four women have always been in my life. The Golden Girls became my security blanket when I was feeling particularly anxious, which, admittedly, occurred frequently while I was completing my PhD in bioethics. The more time I spent studying bioethics, a discipline that examines the ethics of the practice of, research on, and policy-regulating medicine and science, the more I realized that the Golden Girls incorporated many important questions that we're still dealing with today. The reason it worked for the Golden Girls to grapple with bioethics is because all four of the main characters are sincere in their discussions of these topics. It helps immensely that the women are solidly developed to the point where the audience understands their behavior and motives, how and why they would react in various situations. Like ethics itself, the characters are each nuanced and multifaceted, which allows for the characters to evolve as they have new experiences. Each character is an effective lens for considering different aspects of complicated issues. For instance, in the 1990 episode, 72 Hours, Rose becomes worried that a blood transfusion she had years ago may have contained HIV-infected blood. As she waits for her results, Sophia refuses to drink out of Rose's mug. The audience can recognize how Sophia's behavior was stigmatizing, but we can also understand her actions are coming from a character in her 80s at the height of the AIDS epidemic. There were certainly viewers who would have reacted the same way Sophia did, and they could learn along with her. The fact that the four protagonists are all mature women living in an unconventional household allowed the show to take on topics that would have been off-limits to most other sitcoms of the time. It portrayed Rose, Blanche, Dorothy, and Sophia as attractive and sexually active, a far cry from the typical sitcom trope of the kooky, unkept, out touch little old ladies. It wasn't just the double entendre and sexual innuendo that made the Golden Girls' envelope pushing. The show also served as a platform to expose the systemic, ingrained paternalism in medicine. For instance, in a 1989 two-part episode, Sick and Tired, Dorothy grapples with an unidentifiable illness and is told by multiple doctors that nothing is wrong with her, including a pre-arrested development and transparent, Jeffrey Tambor, who tells her that it is probably mental and that she should try dating. Of course, Dorothy knows something is wrong with her own body and is eventually diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. In another episode, 1990s Feelings, Rose describes how her dentist groped her breasts during an appointment. She tells the ladies that she doesn't think wow 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 is a medical term. Dorothy reminds the women that just because men in the medical profession wear white does not mean they're angels. Rather than remaining silent, presumably like the rest of the patients he has violated, Rose confronts her dentist about his inappropriate behavior perhaps sparing some other patients from his roaming hands. Too often, doctors are seen as virtually infallible, so scenes like these illustrate that regardless of your age or gender, you have the right to be included in your medical treatment and treated with the same respect and care as any other patient. Rather than waiting until it established a solid fan base that would sit through episodes addressing uncomfortable issues, The Golden Girls came out swinging in the first season with an episode that deals with the complicated decision-making process surrounding organ donation. In a 1985 episode, Blanche's sister Virginia has renal failure and asks Blanche for a kidney. Blanche, never afraid to articulate her own interests, discusses her dilemma with the other women. She either loses a sister or a kidney. Most TV shows probably would have a protagonist like Blanche jump at the opportunity to help her sister. But like anyone facing an ethical medical dilemma in real life, Blanche weighs the risks and benefits of the procedure. She and her sister have had a strained relationship for a long time. Plus, something could go wrong with the surgery, and there's a chance that she will lose function in a kidney later in life and end up needing both. Blanche also understands that without a kidney, her sister will die. Ultimately, Blanche decides to go through with the procedure and donation, but after initial tests at the hospital, she finds out that she is not a viable match for Virginia. Better yet, the hospital was able to find a kidney that was a match, so in Blanche's words, she got to keep her sister and her kidney. Everyone wins, including the audience, who benefits from watching Blanche's decision-making process. These are only a few of the many examples of how the Golden Girls utilized a 22-minute sitcom format to raise issues typically left to dramas or left off television entirely. The fact that we're still watching and discussing the show 30 years later is testament to the show's smart, timeless writing and innovative ways of addressing the tough topics. Also, it's really funny.
0: That was writer and bioethicist Elizabeth Yuko. Thanks so much for listening to the show and for all the writers who chimed in on nostalgia and TV for this episode. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit, feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening.